0: Dystoplicans of the world, I'm Raul Guerrero, and I welcome you to the Dystopian Republic. The midnight of June 30th, 2002, is where today's story will begin. A hollow howl became the air of an empty black room as an old yellow bulb flickered on at its center, showing Regulo and Yamile sleeping like babies beneath it. The two jolted awake at the thundering boop of a bulbous submarine light above a door that heavily opened by dividing into halves. Regulo and Yamile immediately went into a frantic tremble as four ski-masked people in all black entered. Their worry darkened to a sobering terror when said quartet unmasked as four of the same, revealing themselves to be Manola, Rapodo, Passau, and Joachim. Yamily pinned her palms and heels against the floor as her scream became that of a young girl looking up at her assaulter. Regulo winced his left eye at the ceiling, tearing up at God for not answering his prayer that wished for the ordeal that went down beginning on that fateful night in 1998, to not rise from its rest with a vengeful first. He told the four to tell him and Yamile where the F they were in the next five seconds, or they'll get up and raise a bone-breaking, blood-drawing hell. Manola said that neither Regulo nor his little friend, had a chance of making any good out of such a threat, and to make sure he and Yamile don't fathom defying her, she had something to show them, an example they can refer back to whenever they feel like misbehaving. Manola ordered Rapoto, Passau, and Joachim to bring Rocio out of the waiting cell. The men readily complied, and didn't let the then preteens resisting nays get to them. They heaved Rocio up by her clothes and slammed her body the way they'd drop a kettlebell. Rigolo grinded his teeth in a wrinkled cringe at the blunt, bone-cracking impact. Yamile gasped a shriek in time for Rocio to plunge into a girly sob that Manola reacted to by telling her that she doesn't know a thing about pain if she thought she was hurt now. Rapodo, Passau, and Joachim grabbed the box cutters holstered on their belts like pistols and slipped their blades two inches out. Manola did the same, led the seizing of Rocio and told her that she only had herself to blame for what she made her and the men do. Glad and grateful to be with Candida and Catalito the Sixth, and Lisandro allowed them to spend the night at their apartment. Despite being under one roof, all four tossed, turned, lied awake, and or tried very hard to fall asleep for much of the night. When the sun rose, Farinia was passably refreshed. Lisandro felt okay, but not adequately rested. Catalino sucked up his sleep deprivation, and Candida looked drunk on said deficiency. Eating scones and drinking cappuccinos, their hope was that two hours of Guyotels Brumelia in the good morning would caress their minds after an ugly one to punch. Set at the Brumel Center in Brumelia City's Brumel Square, the wedlocked duo of Rudy and Bobby Remedios were the show's smiling, laughing-hugging hosts. Carrie, Bliss, and Eldon Jr., where with Eldon Sr. and Trinity on the front row of the live studio audience, Rudy said that he and Bobby planned to hold a contest to see who could cook up the best full English, Scottish, Irish, Welsh, or Cornish breakfast. The good clean fun that went down wrote out Varinia, Lisandro, Catalino, and Candida's plan to rescue Regulo. And Yamile, like a recipe that knew precisely what it was doing. Their first step was purchasing pistols their pockets could conceal, bullets no bigger than glass pearl beads, and the industry's best body armor. Returning to Varinia and Lisandro's front door, Day, Candida, and Catalino found an urgent letter by Yamile's parents, Enrique and Jasmine, that ordered them to come by their office right away. During the drive to Camelliaburg City Hall, they stopped at an intersection and looked straight ahead, left, and right. Varinia began to cross when a white van with illegally tinted windows ran the sign and came within inches of getting itself T-boned. She slammed her brakes and honked her horn as the other vehicle revved away well above the speed limit. Candida pressed down her window and gave the van an angry middle finger as the arms Lisandro had in the air asked if the driver's head was up the rear end. Catalino was too shaken up to say or do anything, other than press himself against and clenched his seat, and Verinia pulled over, turned on her hazards, and spent the next moment calming her nerves. A garden house turned what was supposed to be a city hall into a retreat where grass, stone, and succulents were the grand fountain norm. Security escorted the two couples to Enrique's office, where he told them to take their seats. Uneasily asked by Catalino what the letter was about, Jasmine answered that he and the others should know very well why they're in her husband's office. Enrique said that the couples were hanging out with Regulo and Yamile when they disappeared and he wanted to hear what they had to say. Lisandro hoped that he and Jasmine weren't thinking they had anything to do with with the kidnappings. Enrique assured him that he doesn't have such a hunch, but that could change if the lies start coming. Farinia and Lisandro remembered what Manola threatened them with if they told anyone that she kidnapped Regulo and Yamile. The training they underwent with Candida and Catalino then played in their heads, reminding them of how capable and skilled they all were in defending themselves and attacking others. Disheartened them into outing Manola as being one of the wanted escapees, Regulo and Yamile's kidnapper, and the mastermind behind the Paisley Gardens bombings. Both pairs were more than prepared to face the corollaries that their tattling will bring to their door. Raw concrete walled and floored a cell void of anything not a part of it, shaping a toilet and sink that haven't tasted running water in some time. The shock Regulo and Yamile were in, escalated to an extreme. Even the word failed to sufficiently stress. Rosia was half an hour into a supine nap, marred by slashes, bites, punches, and kicks that could have killed her, had Manola and her men not been prompt in treating them. Regulo and Yamile snuggled below the barred window for mental warmth as she awoke like a bird emerging from its egg. Rocio's nap didn't do much to relieve the pain she endured and cried herself to sleep because of. Seeing that Regulo and Yamile were feet away, she forcibly got up, and held the toilet and sink, threatening to rip them off and beat her cellmates into comas if they so much as get one step closer to her. Unless shown otherwise, Rocio assumed that the pair were in on her kidnapping or members of a rival group. Regaloo knew right away where her head was at, pleading with her to believe that he and Yamile don't wish to hurt her, Rocio told him and her not to feed her the old spiel of knowing her pain and wanting to help her get better, calling that poop Ola stew the same one Manola's men fed her before snatching her like a purse. Yamile wanted to call her a poor thing and wrap her in her arms like a dog in the rain, but was pretty sure she'd go berserk if she tried. She instead told her that she and Regulo were going to protect her regardless of whether she returns the favor. Rocio was glad to hear that as she wasn't interested in helping Yamile or her boyfriend, believing that they would deliver the same harm if they were holding people like Manola prisoner. That night, Gaiotel Tell Neutral and Azoro were live at the Bromelian Federal Assembly where Rounds the first was to address the legislators. Presley, Oddly, Gabino Third, Roosevelt Sr., Joby Sr., and Romulo were with their respective hench people moving like their tempers were sitting on spikes of shaved marble glass. Aylmer combed Rounds second's long hair in a bedroom that shielded them from the tension building a mile or so from the presidential chateau. Music by Ress and Dress drew him as a big-shot, chic hairdresser who was in the middle of making his equally debonair friend the best hairdo in second grade. Aylmer had the confidence many adults in his trade aspired to have and Rounds couldn't wait to impress his peers with how his hair looked. Their playdate was an amiable break from the incivility that hurt their feelings every morning and evening they wanted a hug with their hello. Aylmer and Rounds's parents both left for work, dreading the worst, and returned home wanting to veg, having little time or not enough energy to tend to their sons' needs and wants. Both boys often found themselves on their own while their families were busy dealing with their more troubled members. the II knew that Rounce I loved him so much and wanted nothing less than the best for him. But he'd be lying to himself if he believed that he and his father hadn't drifted apart a tad since moving into the chateau. As stressed a relationship theirs became, it had a pleasant core unlike what Aylmer had to live with. Like millions of other Bromelians across the mainland and world, Verinia, Lisandro, Catalino, and Candida watched, rounds the first, be introduced, escorted down the lower chamber into an impassioned gust of cheers and boos that hit the ceiling, floor, walls, and seats. Gabino, Roosevelt, and those in their factions were the happiest and most excited to hear their president speak. Oddly, Joby and their lackeys had no cheers to offer but clapped and kept their lips straight out of respect for the office itself and not because they liked or even respected Rounds the First. Presley, Romolo, and their cronies made their detestation of the president bitterly loud and direly clear, escalating in already tense atmosphere. Rounds said good evening to legislators and his fellow Bromelians coming to them tonight with a call for unity after a day of division, violence, and death. He reminded the people of Bromelia of the promise they made after the Civil War, yanking the plug on a tension that would have rubbed a greasy old rag all over his speech. Jarring knocks on the door threw Catalino, Verinha, and Lisandro over the sofa and scared Candida into turning off the TV. Waiting where they sat, those four waited silently for whoever was at the doorstep to leave. They were told to open up as BS2's Firearms division had a search warrant addressed to Varinia and Lisandro's apartment. Cadalino shivered in fear at the questions authorities will ask him and Candida and evidence they'll confront them with. Lisandro wondered what reason BS two could possibly have to raid the apartment he shared with his girlfriend. Kandida had handfuls of hair and developed an urge to cry because of the chain of events she was afraid would unfold. The last warning the four received to open the door spooked Verenia into crawling to the door, opening it and begging not to be arrested. BS2 agents charged inside and headed for the bedroom, finding the weaponry and armor purchased earlier. They stuffed Said items in large bags and walked out the door with them to the whitening shock of the four. Demanding an explanation behind the seizing of his S-word, Lissandro threatened to sue the agents into bankruptcy. The woman leading the raid told him that he'd have a good case if the guns, ammo, and armor he bought weren't stolen. Verenia presented her and her roommates' gun licenses and the receipt of the items they purchased. An agent told the four that the shop where they bought their stuff had also been raided. She added that its owner was under arrest while his employees were being taken to the police station for questioning. Walking out with her associates, that same agent hoped the raid teaches the four a lesson in being observant of where they shop. The door slammed shut and quiet before its knock returned, causing the deadliness of the two pairs' situation to set in. Lisandro realized that no knife in his disposal could put up a fight against the militia of firing machine guns. Varinia felt nothing on her person that had any chance of keeping an automatic bullet from splattering her insides. Her feeling was Lisandro's, and his realization became hers, dismaying them into waiting for the end. Cadalino fought off that dismay by thinking of anything he or his roommates could do to break free of their mortal predicament. Candida remembered having tons of weapons and armor of her own which she bought from a shop that was part of the gun store monopoly La Grande Lanuda set up months after the Civil War. The problem was that her home was in Myronbury, a drive that would take upwards of an hour and a half to complete. Looking at the clock as it neared ten at night, the four had to get to Candida's home as soon as possible, expecting Manola's cronies to visit them overnight. They closed the blinds, shut off the lights, locked up the apartment, and raced off in a sedan. Candida was the driver and had Catalino be her passenger while Varinia, and Lisandro sat in the back. Well into the most hidden kilometer of a mountain pass on the Costa de la Grande-La Gran Lanuta border, the four could only think about getting to their destination before Manola's cronies got to them. Catalino held the grab handle, tried clenching still, stared into the stars, and repeated to himself that all will be fine soon. A widescreen played a VHS of the graduation of Delgadopolis's 1997 Police Academy. It was a payoff that made up for the early mornings and late nights graduates spent on lectures that usually went on for several hours and conditioning that was done in temperatures below zero or in the triple digits more often than not. The class of 1997 was a particularly versed bunch as almost all had fought in the Civil War as adolescents or tweenagers. Already sinewy from that experience, the academy fortified their bones to steel and made their muscles as tough as carbon fiber. Its grads swore not to ask or tell each other which side they were on, during the Civil War, under threat of immediate termination. Their lecturers and trainers were dead serious about creating a force that bled stars, stripes, black and white. At the time of graduation, that seemed to have grown fruit as the graduates saw one another as siblings worth fighting and dying for. One member of that bunch was Flavia a fact that made Manola want to spew her dinner on the posh, silk couch, and sheeny tiled floor of a dark lounge in her hideout. The sisters and Flavio Jr. weren't ever that close, as the elders they looked up to were on different sides of the Civil War, while black hornets, by virtue of their births, only one was true to that color and sting, whereas the other two inwardly lived different truths. This gap in loyalty proved to matter little as Flavio Jr., Flavia, and Manola experienced an extent of the Yellow Cross's iniquity that couldn't be concisely described. Their bonds only grasp was their difficulty in being sane when on their own, in specific circumstances, as their pasts would unpalatably demonstrate. Manola told the paused shot of Flavia that the upper hand will be hers, and stay that way when the time is right. A police-like siren snapped her out of her break with its three trios of snappy whistles. It left no doubt that a problem had arisen and warranted her assistance, being the same knocking sound that signaled to Candida that she was to pull over or be pursued. Everyone in the sedan wasn't sure whether to be glad that cops had them in their sights or aghast over the time their traffic stop would add to the trip. That confliction swung to the ladder when a lone cop stepped out As he'd be neutralized in seconds, should Manola's goons carry out an ambush. But when Candida and Catalino saw his square face and heard his tough greet, they froze as if a monster had emerged from under the bed. The cop wasn't given a chance to explain why he stopped them or pull out his gun in response to being approached bellicosely, Candida. And Catalino wrestled him to the ground where they clobbered him, kicking in his ribs and sternum. Varinia and Lisandro ran out to intervene, but halted short of extending a hand when they saw who the cop was. They helped Cadalino hold him down and on his spine, doing a good job in keeping him restrained despite his doughty effort to free himself. Candida stomped her right black sock and mahogany sandal, slapping the cop's face with the impact. She told him to look at her face, asked if it rang a bell, and whether he's ever taken part in transferring it. That hit the cop with a haunting thrust that he couldn't believe caught up with him. He and the others who took Candida away were nine-tenths, of the way through their trip when she regained consciousness. A gradual, groggy eyes open, curious, upward look left and right, fearful listen around and self-find of being under her abductors' capture snapped her in a panic that ruffled them into committing an act too horrid not to regret. The cop confessed his involvement in the attack Describing it as something that gave him pleasure when it happened, but nauseated him moments after. Candida sensed the shame he used to hide how great that action made him feel in more ways than one. That attack left Mucus blisters, she knew would remain uncoverable parts of her skin for life. It explained to Catalino why Candida was staunchly against sharing what she ate or drank as well as her refusal to do anything sexual with him. Not much time had passed since the ordeal when she started having sores that didn't fully heal or would do so then recur. This was unusual for Candida whose life went by with a shallow pimple on her cheek if at all. Her concern over this sudden emergence was considerable, worsening as the sores spread at the pace of an update processing computer. Candida's doctor prescribed her a powerful skin cream that treated the rawness but not what was causing it. Her ailment resurfaced days after it healed with an excruciating will that swelled, bled, and pussed. Fearing that Candida could die, Catalino rushed her to the emergency room where she tested positive for the virus that never stops giving. The pain that got her placed in an intensive care bed was the work of an extraordinarily bad flare-up being the culmination of stress that built up in her like plaque clogging an artery. Irrespective of of how serious her case was it was a condition candida was unlikely to escape from for the foreseeable future taking that in she aimed the gun she sneakily snatched from the cop at his nose and asked if his nasty butt had any parting words catalino verinia and lisandro struggled holding him still for a second more but then his body relaxed as he showed Candida a sadistic, bloody-mouthed smile. Off-road trucks revved from below the roadsides at the RPMs of monster trucks climbing over hills. They spun, reversed, and went slightly forward, forming a jagged circle that Manola's goons made inescapable by aiming their rifles at every limb that wasn't the cop's. Rapodo ordered Candida to drop the gun or become human cheese, giving her roomies the count of three to get their B-word behind off his comrade. About to say three, he found her frady unhanding of the pistol and Catalino, Verena, and Lisandro's fraught release of the cop to be a couple unique kinds of adorable... Candida muscled up the courage to ask Rapoto why his two mates weren't beside him like they always were. Offended by what she hinted at, he fired a shot that blew a fissure into the road, rubbing numerous tiny patches of her skin raw, nearly knocked right on her backside, and in dire pain. Candida said that moments like the one ongoing Almost made her wish she was still in Dean Jr.'s camp. Telling his goons to keep her in their aim, Rapoto charged at her and strangle held the skin above her sternum, gripping her right ear with a desire to tear it off her head. He said that the unparalleled affection he had for Passau and Joachim was purely platonic equating his bond to three friends who love each other very much. Furious but calm, Rapoto told Candida that his brothers were busy leading other matters in places not where they're at. He called her snarky comment a lot less egregious than her wish, calling it as clear a confirmation of his worst as any hill here, Rapoto goaded the four to tell him if turning on the people who rescued them from Dean was worth it. Mad to hear only silence, he had two of his goons jab into Candida and in Catalino's throats, a non lethal agent that impermanently took away their voices. Rapoto wasn't going to allow the pair he silenced to be cowards with no ill consequences, urging Varinia and Lisandro to buckle up for a ride that'll do more than spill beans. Even towards its 11 o'clock closing time, both the pizzeria and arcade in Snake Ice Pizza were still packed with customers. Eldon Sr., Trinity, Rudy, and Bobby drank to the point of smelling Like the pilsner making them clumsily silly, they weren't alone in drinking past the six-pack as most of the other guests also went all out on the booze to depress their stress after a long day's work. An hour on the dance machine drenched bliss and carry in sweat, but the pizza and soda they consumed left their staminas with plenty in the tank all cheers from their fifth close battle in a row. The girls hugged as though a humid dance to resin dress was in the works. People in a van outside watched them and the other kids struggling not to gag at the music while holding flashbangs and smoke canisters. Closing his left fist, a masked man in a black truck gazed daggers at the space beneath the white vehicle's undercarriage. The man in charge told customers to head for the registers and prize counter as Snake Eyes was now closed. Joachim radioed his goons to attack and take at will, but would instead receive a loud, abrupt cutoff. What he heard was the van and those in it being blown to a fiery crisp by a grenade thrown from the now fleeing truck. The explosion blew the restaurant's windows, crumpled its front four inches in, rang the ears of its customers, and knocked many of them out. Two of the few still conscious, Bliss and Carrie, teared up seeing their hangout spot crumble in its powerless rubble, then wailed upon finding that their parents were really hurt and needed doctors on the double. When news of the explosion reached Manola, she scorned Joachim for effing up bad with a psychosis that reduced him to tears that begged to be forgiven, their spats stopped after hearing that Passau secured a truckload big enough to form a whole new crew. Then its damage was undone by Rapoto arriving with Candida, Catalino, Verenia, and Lisandro. The seizure and arrival rebuilt the devastation Joachim's screw up caused to Manola's spirit which she used to tell him that he was lucky. She advised him to stay best friends with Rapodo and Passau, as their why he even has an authoritative place in her ranks. Yamile bawled at a noise level taller than many skyscrapers as Manola's goons ordered Rocio to cover her face in long knife cuts. Laying in his blood and open wounds, Riggler was in too much pain to plead for an end to his friend's slashing. Rocio kept the cutting going to the watchful eyes of red lasers proving her desperation to keep the guards satisfied and from thinking of a reason to be nervous. In a hallway lit by light bulbs, Rapoto led the goons escorting the four down it, revealing the ill-treated states and sorrowful weeping of other captives. Varinia's blood chilled to frost at the faces inside the cells, and Lisandro thought his eyes were deceiving him, but Candida recognized the prisoners, and so did Catalino. The captives seen were a dozen of the countless across Brumelia, who had gone missing in the span of over a year. Weeks after a certain showdown, an uptick in disappearances occurred, which soon became a surge not seen since the early 1980s. What really kept the authorities up at night was that more than two-thirds of the abductees were between the ages of 11 and 18, but some were well into their twenties. Police like Flavia treated the kidnapping surge like an epidemic that had to be relentlessly contained before victims start getting killed. They succeeded in breaking up smaller, less sophisticated abduction rings, but crashed and burned in dismantling the ones likely on Upton or Dean's payrolls. Flavia knew of at least 15 officers who had died, been forced to retire or into witness protection as a result of pursuing those entities. Verena's sincerity in her disbelief over that first find equaled Lisandro's, but the hurt it dished out would be a precursor to what the second would cook up. The four were thrown into the cell in time to see Rocio open Yamile's cuts as much as her nails would allow. It was a dream come true for Manola to have the Maroonberry Six in one room so that she can rip it apart well, truly, and for I, She thought of the bruise that Upton was stirring up in secret at the College of the Shetlands. Incurable. Manola confidently had Rocio take five and be cleaned up and dressed for her instruction at dawn. Rapoto politely told her to get on with it, hearing the agents he ordered to be injected begin to wear off. Manola yelled that Candida and Catalino knew about and helped her and Upton plan and organize everything they've done and had their associates do. Whitening shrieks and gasps hushed the room such that a pin drop could have a lightning strike's noise. Manola said that Candida and Catalino had been colluding with her since they first talked while the pair and others of the six were still in Dean's clutches. She added that them three were in cahoots until the week before all their hard work was to be put on drive. Manola called Candida and Catalino supreme cowards for bowing out of a campaign they had such integral roles in setting up. She couldn't understand why the pair didn't ask to go home when their complicity was still non-existent, adding that she would have been willing to send them home and do the work herself. Candida screamed that Manola and her B-words never had any MFing interest in letting go of her or Catalino. Rapoto advised her to watch her mouth if her plans were to keep having one, directing his laser at it and readied his hands for a firefight. Having him chill out a little, Manola couldn't give any less of a flying F about the Six's past friendship or present friction, placing priority on the fact that she's now a fugitive. She said that a lesser person would have told them that they had signed their death warrant the second they ratted her out. Manola called herself above that but deemed the six guilty of crossing her and will recompense her. She told them that there was only a yes and not a no or maybe in that regard, having her ways of making good on that. The morning news was flooded with copies of the same headline concerning last night's explosion outside the Snake Eyes in Bromelia City. Bliss and Carrie were at their parents' bedsides as they recovered from the shockwave that left them concussed. Mentally a mess from all the chaos, Rounds the First called in sick for the rest of the week, handing his duties as president to his VP, a decision made during a politically pivotal time. In her car and waiting to start her patrol, Flavia stared at a BS2 most wanted photo of Manola on her lap. She refused to give into the temptation to wish that her sister was never born, wanting to make amends with her while she was still alive. Flavia pleaded for God to save Manola from the violent end that befell Flavio Jr., starting her car and driving off In a compression between her love for family and duty as an officer, Dean watched the last two days to popcorn and cola, smiling at how little the media was covering him or his colleagues. His only unease was the truck scene leaving Snake Eyes as he didn't recall sending any vehicle or person to that location. This gave him a hunch he refused to even entertain out of fear that it could be true and a genuine threat to all. Joby Jr. and Lindy opted to stay at the ranch and not report for work recovering from Rounds the First's days-inducing speech. No Bromelian was immune from the impacts of June 29th and 30th, whether they were Quentin Escarn Maya, Jansen Sr., Loretto, Aleja, or anyone else who had a TV or could afford a newspaper. Some place in Las Grandes, Cascadas, a woman told someone on the other line not to waver in their search for youngsters to mold. She loved how neither the government, Upton, nor Dean knew of her network's existence or that she was at one of its helms. The woman ended her call, ate a donut, walked to her computer, and opened up Pricep as a guest. She grinned at the photos of smiling kids that the site had no shortage of, but frowned at the adults they were with. The woman gestured exes at the parents, relatives, or legal guardians whom the children saw as their role models. She desired to take them out of the picture so that she can raise their kids to be her network's idea of the greatest generation. Bliss, Carrie, Jade, Josefa, Crystal, Lydia, Mavis, and Nigella were merely eight of the unnumbered children whom she had her sights set on. The woman jumped into her truck and traveled to a cottage where she greeted her dear friends and waved high at the kids they were caring for, including Basilio and Inada. But she, those running the group home or living in it, would be no less unaware of the turns for the better and or worse their lives will take. And as fate would have it, the end of June would be an omen to what July would have in store for Brumelia and beyond. And that was The Wounding Finds. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to the story I just gave. Share this show with everyone you know. Make sure they share it. With everyone they know, check out my website at www.rss.com podcasts slash the dystopian republic. Send me your respectful questions and constructive feedback at junior 95 at gmail.com and lastly, support the show via my PayPal at Paypal.com slash PaypalMe slash Raul Guerrero Jr. On that note, I'm Raul Guerrero, and come again for another gripping, thoughtful, and sinister episode of The Dystopian Republic.